As you take your seats, please take your Bible if you have yours with you. If you do not, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you or near you. And turn to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew's Gospel, we are still in about to finish chapter 22. And what we come to at the end of this chapter is the conclusion of a little section that actually began back in chapter 21. You might recall, if you were with us uh, some time ago, uh, the chief priests and the elders who served there in the temple came to Jesus and asked him a question. And this entire section has really built evidence, and the Lord has answered the question, by what authority are you doing these things And who gave you this authority? And they could have been, we know at that time, talking about his miracles, talking about all of his teaching and all of those things, but probably directly because he had come into the temple and had cleared out the money changers, they were questioning, by what authority do you come in here and mess up our business? And that's a good question for us. By what authority does Christ enter into your life and mess up your business? Because he demands your all. He deserves your all. He alone is worthy of all praise, all honor, all glory, and He is worthy of your life. And if you and I get off track as believers and begin to allow idols, to allow other things, even good things, to come into our lives and take the place of Christ, then we are no different from these who stood before Him and refused to receive Him. We look just like the world. We worry like the world. We talk like the world. We think like the world. I was thinking about the world and the world system. We were talking a little group of us Wednesday night after the, uh, the prayer meeting. And, and I always put this caveat first. I am in no way comparing the President of the United States to Jesus Christ. Okay? I'm, I'm just not. Donald Trump's a lot of things, but he's not Jesus Christ. (laughs) But as I've watched, and as you've watched, really, since before uh, he uh, even became a, a candidate, the enemies have surrounded him. And strange enemies have made bedfellows together against him. I mean, you've got uh, the traditional Republicans in many ways have joined together with the Democrats to go against Donald Trump, saying that he's not a legitimate president, saying that he is insane, saying all of these things. And this is the world system. It is Satan's system. And that's what we're seeing with Christ. By what authority do you do these things? They've already accused him of of casting out demons by the power of Baal-zebub, the chief of demons. They think he's crazy. 
His mom and his brothers came to get him because they thought he was insane. And now you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees have, have joined together Together with a, a political party, the Herodians, they've all come together and they are firing all of these questions at Jesus in the hope of what? Deposing him in front of the people in order to remove him. This is the way the world system operates. And so when I see it taking place in our governmental system and in our media and all of those things, it, it should not surprise me. This is the way the world system operates. So should you be surprised if you have people who rise up against you? I mean, if you are proclaiming what we have been singing about, what Matthew is bringing us to this morning, that Christ alone is worthy of all glory, He is the one true and living God, if you are proclaiming that He is the only way to salvation, they will rise up against you. And strange enemies will suddenly join together against you. It's just the way the system is. Well, Jesus wasn't befuddled by this. He, he just he either refused to answer their questions or he answered them in such a way that their mouths would stop. Were stopped. You remember, they said, by what authority do you do this? And he didn't answer them directly. He says, well, look up chapter uh, 21. Look down verse 24. Jesus answered them. I'll ask you a question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And so they discussed it among themselves. Verse 25, 26, and 27 tells us, saying, well, if we say it was from heaven, he'll say to us, well, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from man, well, we're afraid of the crowd because they all hold that John was a prophet. So instead of answering, they said to Jesus, we don't know. We don't know. And Jesus said, neither am I going to tell you. But then he began through a series of parables, and then we have uh, uh, controversy questions that are put to him. He, all along the way, is showing them by what authority he does these things, by what authority he teaches, by what authority he does miracles, by what authority he cleanses the temple. He is showing them. And if they had listened closely, and they, they heard him speaking judgment against them in the parables, but they listened closely, he, he gave them the answer. Not only their questions, the four questions, by what authority do you do this? Should we pay taxes uh, to Caesar in the resurrection? This woman who's had seven husbands, whose, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And then which is the greatest commandment? 
All of these were designed to to promote them as wise, them as powerful, and to defeat the Lord Jesus. And now, this morning, when we come to our text, we're going to see him actually answer all of these things. But know this, when people come to you with specific questions, doubting your faith, doubting your beliefs, they may do so through, through your politics, they may do so in your theology, they may do so in, in doctrinal channels. And we said last week that when people ask such questions that are designed to stump you, and the cults are very, very good at that, or designing to, to make you look foolish, the reminder is we must know the Scripture And we must know the Lord of the Scripture. You must have the Spirit of God within us, dwelling there, directing us in in wise responses. But if we don't know the Scripture or how to open the Scripture and find the answers to the questions, then we will be stopped. So we go to the Scripture, we learn what they say about God. We learn what the Scriptures say about man. We learn what uh, Scripture says about sin. We look and, and see what it says about salvation, what it says about the Christ, what it says about the resurrection, what it says about coming judgment and reward, what it says about eternity. And we go and we learn and the Spirit teaches us. And then we formulate what we believe out of the knowledge of the Bible led by the Spirit of God. We cannot be those who run to a verse of Scripture here or there to try to justify our sins or our actions or our inactions. We look at the whole counsel of God We look at all of Scripture, and how do we interpret Scripture? Scripture. Against Scripture. I knew somebody was going to answer. That's right. I can't go there and, 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 and make it say what I want it to say. Scripture is not a matter of one's own interpretation. It is the Spirit of God who teaches So I don't want to try to make Scripture say what I want it to say or maybe even what I think it says when it doesn't do it. I must study to show myself approved unto God, a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed. And I'm going to tell you, even the most devout believer can fall into that trap. And we've got to guard our hearts against that. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. So let us together study Struggle, learn, grow in discipleship until we are brought, all of us, under the weight of the truth of the Word of God. So they've asked him questions about politics and taxes and citizenship and even the resurrection. And as important as those things are, it is the question that he asks them that is most vital. Let's read together. Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 through 46. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. 
saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Holy God, teach us by your word. Remind us this morning of your greatness, the greatness of our Christ. Father, forgive us when we take your grace and trample it under our feet. For then we trample Christ under our feet. Lord Jesus, we lift up your name and desire you to be glorified most of all. Amen. That's the great question. It's the question that every human being must answer. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is he? Not who he is to me, but who is he? Because most people are saying, Jesus is this to me. And how you answer that question, how I answer that question, actually determines my eternal destiny. Because people see Jesus in a lot of different ways. Some see him as a figure from some distant history. A truly moral man, they may say. A great teacher, they may say. A great philosopher, they may say. Even uh, other religions hold that he was a prophet. Some read of his story and see, think of him as a martyr to some cause. Some actually see him as the model, the highest model of human morality and goodness. Still, some see him as uh, the religious leaders of that day did, of Judaism did. An enemy who wants uh, and desires to change their way of life. Whose philosophies remain a threat to their sin. In every case, those people who see Christ in this way still see him as only a man. Only a man. Long gone. Or at least far away. Is that how you see him? He is near you. By his spirit, he indwells you. Is he just to you a, a good teacher? Certainly he is and has been presented by Matthew as one who is, uh, teaches with amazing authority and who is worthy of following, no doubt. But how you and I think of Jesus every moment of every day 
says a lot about our life and our Christian walk. So now while the Pharisees were gathered together and they, they've all been present in this barrage of questions that have been coming from one party and then the next, they've all been there. And while they were gathered together, Jesus says, now let me ask you a question. You've, you've asked me, now let me ask you, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. So he's evaded all their traps, and they're all, all the questions and the traps were based fundamentally in their refusal to recognize Jesus as the promised Messiah of God. And that's what they should have been talking about instead of figuring out ways to get rid of him. They should have recognized him as the Messiah. But the problem stemmed from the fact that they were just looking for a human nationalistic liberator. And one way or another, some wanted him to come in and to sit on the throne and restore the theocracy, but he would still just be a man. Others expected this warrior zealot to come in and overthrow their enemies, but he would still just be a man. Others wanted a leader who would lead them away from the pitfalls of society and the sinfulness and live off in a cloistered little community somewhere, but he would still be just a man. They all expected Messiah to be only a man. And if in your thinking Jesus was only a man, then you are as lost and deceived as they were. So he directed this question to explore some spiritual, scriptural teaching about Messiah. Whose, whose son is he? In other words, what lineage would he come from? Now, Jews were big into the study of lineage. There in the temple, there would be a great record. And of course, the temple in 70 AD was destroyed and all of those records with it. But everyone knew what, what family line they came from. So that when the census was given, uh, we were told about in Luke 2, everyone went into his own city. And Joseph also went up out of Nazareth into Judea, into the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. So that is established. And then you go and you read the other genealogy, and you realize that not only was Christ Jesus descended from David through his earthly father's side, which not really his father, you remember, but also from his mother's side. He's doubly descended in his humanity and in his Godliness. Well, it be his lineage. It's going to come from David. And even uneducated Jews would know the answer to that question. And certainly these knowledgeable religious elite people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they would know. It's basic history. Come from the line of David. Turn with me real quickly uh, back to your Old Testament to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, or if you don't want to turn, just jot it down. You can check me out on it later. And you come down to verse 12, and the Lord is speaking to David through the prophet Nathan. David is a king. And Nathan says to him, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, 
I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, obviously, as you read that, you could instantly say, well, there's some application to Solomon here. He's going to build a house for, for my name. And we know that Solomon built that, that temple. But as soon as Solomon messed everything up, and Jason's been teaching us well about that, and we're beginning to see his decline as we're going through kings uh, together with him, uh, the kingdoms are divided And ultimately, who knows who will be on the throne of Samaria or the throne of Jerusalem? Now, this is understood to be the covenant with David that there would be a king upon Israel's throne for all eternity. And you and I understand that that is through Jesus Christ. Look with me at Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel 37. Look down at verse 21. Ezekiel was one of the great prophets who not only proclaimed the word of God, but he, uh, he, he uh, acted things out so that people could not only hear, but they could see. And so he has got Two sticks, and one is uh, the divided kingdom. What one is 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 for uh, Judah, and one is for Israel. And he ties them together. And then the Lord God says in verse twenty-one: "Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land." And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king over them all. And they shall no longer be two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Verse 24, my servant David shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. Obviously, this was never fulfilled in a, 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 an individual because verse 25 says, They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever, and David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. And so was the answer that the Pharisees gave wrong? The son of David. And the answer is no. Of course he's the son of David. Of course, he is the one who will be their prince forever. He is our prince forever. He is our king forever. Of course. And Matthew, throughout his gospel, has clearly shown from the very first verse of his gospel that Jesus indeed was the son of David. 
And you have various individuals throughout the book proclaiming him, and that's a messianic term, proclaiming him as the son of David. The two blind men that were in Galilee in chapter 9, verse 27, they cry out, have mercy on us, son of David. And then the two blind men in in Jericho in chapter 20, verse 30, they cry out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowds, when he was coming into the city, that day that he cleansed the temple and what we call the the, the triumphant uh, entry into Jerusalem, the people cried out, and they cried out all sorts of messianic statements, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And then you drop down just a, a little bit further after that, and, and you've got the little children who are, are, are saying, Hosanna to the son of David. And that really ticked off the temple leaders. Because there, even the children are proclaiming that this is Messiah. And the crowds ask from time to time, Messiah's not going to do greater deeds than this. Can this be the son of David? Can this be the Messiah? And so Matthew has shown us all along that he is the son of David. But that is not enough. Because Solomon was the son of David. Nathan was the son of David. Many were the sons of David. So Jesus asks them. Verse 43, back in our text from chapter 22. How can this be? How is it that David, in the Spirit, and that's speaking to the inspiration of of the Holy Scriptures, and he's referring here, of course, to Psalm 110 and verses 1, says, how then David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So if Messiah is simply a human descendant of David, why then does David speak of him as Lord, as master, as sovereign? Sovereign even over the great king, the one who has the highest human authority in the land. And so he he went, Jesus went to Psalm 110, verse 1, and this inscription that, that is there, the superscription says, a psalm of David. And the inspiration in the Spirit. This has established this Scripture as truth. And Jesus is presenting it to the Pharisees and anybody else who's listening as the truth. The second Lord there would be Adonai, not Yahweh. Yahweh said to Adonai, sit at my right hand. And this can only be Messiah. But the Lord who sits in the position of the highest privilege and authority at the right hand of the Father, second only to God, he cannot be just a man. He is fully man, but he must be more. He must be more. 
That position of power and authority. You remember back in chapter 20 when James and John's mother comes up and she said, Lord, I got a favor. Uh, when you come into your kingdom, will you have one of my sons set on your right hand and one set on your left hand? She wanted them in what? Positions of authority. Positions of power. The most important positions. Seated at the right hand of the king. Messiah holds that place. He sits next to the Father and rules over all his enemies. Go back and read Psalm 110, verses 1 through 4. See his priesthood there. The, the, the writer of Hebrews uses that text a lot. In fact, there's a lot of New Testament quotes from Psalm 110. If David calls him Lord, how then is he his son? And the answer wasn't wrong. Yes, he is the son of David. It's just too simple. Just too simple. The Christ cannot be merely a human descendant of David if he is seated at the right hand of majesty on high, ruling with the power and authority of God Almighty. He must be God. And so he is fully man and he is fully God. Now we understand this, and Jesus went no further in his explanation to them, and they finally just had enough. They couldn't trap him, they couldn't understand him, and they could not stop him. And so they went off to stop him the only way they knew how. And in two short days, he will be betrayed, and he will be taken. And he will be beaten and embarrassed and stripped of his clothing and hung on a bloody cross for a year. The high king whom they should have worshipped, whom they should have seen as Messiah, they go off and now they plot his certain death. Inherent in Jesus' teaching, though, all the way through, even in this, was an appeal to see him as the giver of life, to see him as the, the true king to see him as the one who would not only forgive their sins, but would give them life. Mark tells us in, in his gospel uh, at, at, about these events in, in Mark chapter 12, verse 37. He says, the great throng heard him gladly, but they remained unconvinced and they remained unconverted. Because the great throng in just a couple days at the inciting of the high priest and the chief priest and the elders and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all of the enemies, at their urging, they will say, let him be crucified. Give us Barabbas. Many hear the gospel gladly. But you can hear the gospel and you can walk away unconverted. 
You can embrace it even emotionally or in your mind, but until the Spirit of God enters in and changes you from darkness into light, from death to life, then you are merely a hearer. Matthew has presented us that, yes, Messiah would be the son of David, but so much, so much, so much more. And he and the other gospel writers just give us so much overwhelming evidence. And these people had that evidence in front of them. They heard his teaching. They saw his miracles. They knew about everything he had done. They'd been dogging him from early on in his ministry, even way up in Galilee. They would follow him. They knew everything. They knew his lineage. They had checked him out. And all they saw was a man who was there to interfere with their power. Jesus will interfere with your power. But he will give you his power to live and to walk and to understand Scripture. Yeah, Jesus is the son of David and he is a man. But he is the one whom all of the prophets foretold. All the way up to John the Baptist. Each one told of his coming. John said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Jesus told the Jews, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. All of Scripture points to the coming of the Christ. And yet you refuse to come that you may have life. It was always this built-in call. Come to me. Come to repentance. Come to life. The gospel writers show him as the one who uh, withstood the onslaught of Satan's temptation The writer of Hebrews, seizing upon that, wrote, We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every aspect, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The Lord Jesus was tempted in every way, and yet never, never failed the Father. He taught with such authority and such precision that no mere man ever had. He rightly explained the law of God. He rightly proclaimed righteousness. He spoke and demons fled. He touched and diseases were healed. Blind eyes were opened, deaf ears were unstopped, lame bodies were made whole. And he went to the poor, and he went to sinners, and he received them, and the rejected, and the the, the downtrodden, he proclaimed the good news to them. And he knew what was in every heart. He knew what was in the heart of these Pharisees, of these Herodians, of these Sadducees, of these scribes. He knew what was in their heart and that was evil always, continually evil against him. 
And yet, he continued to teach them and to give them opportunity to turn from their sin to righteousness. And he offered relief from the the heavy burdens of religiousness. These pharisaical rules that must be followed. And he offered them rest for the soul. Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden. All who labor. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It is not in the works of righteousness that we are redeemed. It is for the works of righteousness that we are redeemed. And we are redeemed only by the blood of Jesus Christ. And His righteousness covers us. I mean, He commanded and the storms were stilled. He's a creator. He called and the dead came out of the tombs. And they've seen all of this. And you and I have read all of this. But know this. As surely as the wise men came to worship him in Matthew chapter 2, so it is those who are made wise by the wisdom of God that worship the Lord Christ. Wise men worshiped him. Powerful men hated him. Hey, buddy. I love little children. Well, bye. I think he's going to home in and come right back where he belongs, Michael. He's not just a man. God Almighty proclaimed, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is my son, son of David, yes, but he is son of God, and he still calls, and he still invites, and he still expects from you, from me, our total devotion to him, and he has that right. If he has proclaimed that you are forgiven, if he has proclaimed that you are redeemed, if he has proclaimed that you are his, they got the kid under control. This is, come back here. If he has proclaimed this about you, will you not live accordingly? That's the call. And the call is to come to Christ. And if you're here and you have never come to faith in Christ, that is our great desire for you. But if you are here and you are in Christ, we want to see you grow into the fullness of a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's our mission as a church. To proclaim Christ for who he truly is. Yes, fully man, son of man, son of David, but son of God, the only Savior. 
Not a figure from some long distance past, but the living, risen Savior. Yes, seated at the right hand of majesty on high, but also indwelling us by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is the high king. He is worthy of following. He is worthy of listening to. He is worthy of becoming like. And so the Spirit of God is at work in you, moment by moment, day by day, conforming you to the image of Christ. And so we proclaim that. That's what our mission is as a church. To make lifelong, covenant-keeping disciples. And so I invite you to become a part in, in the discipleship of this church. And the things that we are establishing. The things that we are doing that would enable you to be a, a closer, better follower of Jesus Christ and to proclaim the gospel. We must have this established firmly in our mind. The Christ. Whose son is he? He is the son of God. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. My hope and my prayer this morning is that you would have a renewed vigor in what you see and think and know about the Christ and all of the joys about which we have sung. They are all true. And if you are here and you have never come to faith, there's somebody waiting right through those doors back there. There will be in a moment. And you can just walk out there and they will help you come to understand your need for a Savior. You can get up and you can go now. Let's bow together. And Father, I do pray that as your word has revealed the Lord Christ, that we also would reveal him to the nations. That we would live in faithfulness, thinking of all of your great and mighty attributes. You who know all things. You who are all powerful. You who are all wise. You who dwell in everlasting light and have shined into the darkness of our lives and have brought us salvation. We give you praise and glory, O Christ. And Lord, I do pray that if there is one or two or many among us that have never come to saving faith, that today they would hear the call of Jesus to repent, for his kingdom is at hand. And to come in faith and trust. Lord, draw Men to yourself, women to yourself, children to yourself. So hear our prayer as we desire to know you more. The power of your resurrection, O oh Jesus, and even the fellowship of your suffering, that we might not only know you, but proclaim you in our homes, in our town, and to the ends of the earth. Thank you, O oh Lord. To Christ I pray. Amen.